Well, it was uh, great to see how much attention Jesus got this year in the Super Bowl, wasn't it? He got some, he got some credit. That was great. Uh, and uh, what we saw in our passage in Mark 9 is that Jesus got a whole lot of credit from Peter and James and John who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw him transfigured before them. And we saw last time how important that vision is for us. We need to see Jesus as he is. And he's not walking among us as he was 2,000 years ago in his humility. He is now glorified at the right hand of the Father. When we see him again, we'll see him just like John saw him in his vision in Revelation chapter 1. And we'll be tempted, we'll, we'll, we'll think that we've just died uh, because of the infinity of his glory and our own lack of it. Uh, Jesus is indeed glorified. We need to remember that. That's what inspires us to go back into our workplaces today. And uh, just remember, you're incognito. People don't know uh, that you really belong to a glorified family, a royal family. But you know it because you've had the vision. That's what we saw last time. But then isn't it interesting, we're going to read a text now that, that just seems to descend into the, the pit of despair. I mean, right from the Mount of Transfiguration, as we saw probably Mount Hermon, and, and now down among the hoi polloi and all the filthiness and chaos of life. Now let's look and see what happens because this too is a very important lesson. We need to go on the mountaintop. We need to have our amen retreat. We need to get a new vision of Jesus and all the rest. We need to have amen Bible study. Then you've got to go out there. We're in here studying together, looking at wonderful things together. Then you've got to go out there. you always got to go out there uh, until Jesus comes back. And here he is going back out there. Let's take a look at it in uh, Mark chapter 9 beginning with verse 14 uh, when um, they've come down from the mountain. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about uh, with them about? He asked a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him To the ground, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. 
After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Amen. Well, notice in these first verses, verses 14 through 19, that Jesus takes us off the mountain into the cultural chaos. If you follow Jesus Christ, indeed, you will have a vision of him. In fact, part of the reason you come to him is that you see it. You see him. You understand his greatness. You understand his glory. You understand that he is to be bowed down before. He is to be obeyed. And you, you see him as he is, at least in part, maybe dimly, maybe like in a fog, but you see him. You, you, you gain clarity as time goes on in your life, but you have that first vision. But then immediately you find out you're being sent into a very difficult world to perform a very difficult task. It's not clean. It's not easy. It's not simple. And uh, that's exactly what we find out with these disciples. Let's look in verses 14 through 18. You'll see that the chaos is indeed great. And there are four things that contribute to this chaos. It's the same kind of chaos we face. These disciples face the same thing. First of all, there were moralistic, turf-guarding religionists, usually called pastors. All right? Moralistic, turf-guarding religionists. It's been a while since I've been called that. Here it is. What you have here is Jesus coming down with his disciples. You find a large crowd there, and around them, we're told, in verse 14, teachers of the law arguing with them. There's an argument going on. There's a boy over there foaming at the mouth, rigid, having a fit, and all they can do is have a theological argument. And here is what most scholars think the argument was about. These are scribes and Pharisees who usually kind of hang out in Jerusalem. That's kind of where the academy is. That's where the clergy birds are taught. That's where they do all their theologizing. But they've come out of Jerusalem quite a ways. They've come all the way up to the area of Galilee. And why are they there? Well, of course, to check out this new sect, this new movement, this new personality cult, as they might call it, these followers of Jesus, and to see what's going on. And here's what they found out. They saw this boy who seems to be clearly... Uh, possessed by an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, and they find these disciples of Jesus claiming that they can cast out demons. And the argument is probably something like this. Who told you you have authority to exercise demons? Don't you know you have to be trained for this? Don't you know that this really belongs to the rabbis? In fact, a very special group of the rabbis who are trained for this. What makes you think you can do it? The disciples said that Jesus told us we could do it. Oh, so you just took your directions from Jesus. Yes, sir. We're just doing what he told us to do. So there was an argument between them. And the reason the argument had gotten started in the first place was because the disciples had tried their little exercise demon sort of thing, and they didn't come out. It didn't work. So you had all this furor, a disappointed customer <laughs> whose son was had a demon, the disciples who were frustrated because Jesus gave them the authority to cast out demons and it wasn't coming out. And here are the rabbis, first ones to accuse them. Well, the, your problem is 
you weren't trained properly. You didn't go to seminary. The problem is that you didn't, you didn't get ordained. You didn't go through the proper process. The problem is that you don't have the authority of the rabbis behind you. So you got all this chaos going on. And isn't it just like our own day? You have all these problems around us. We're going to talk about it in a few moments. And sometimes all the church can do is just argue about it. You know, who's, who's supposed to take care of that? Who's supposed to do this? Whose fault is this? And whose fault is that? Instead of actually solving the problem in the way that Jesus has given us to solve it. So we find this rather typical. If you find it in your church, well, hello. Uh, this is the way it's been for a long, long time. And don't get overly discouraged about it. And we're going to see actually what the solution for it is. Uh, but don't just, just say, well, you know, Jesus didn't intend me to live down here in this stinko pot. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back up that mountain. You know, I'm, I'm going to get myself another transfigured vision. <laughs> I'm going on another retreat. Well, no, you just got off your retreat. You just, you just will have gotten out of the Amen Bible study. Now, let's, let's go back there into the mess and let's be servants and try to figure this thing out and serve the Lord faithfully. But you'll find that sometimes all that people can do is blame other people when they look at the mess. And when you look at our city uh, with all these problems, I just was it last week? It was in USA Today. I think we're the fattest city in the world, <laughs> or at least in, the, in America. We're, we're the unhealthiest city uh, in the country. And, you know, so we're going, what, what do most people do? Well, they'll just read the articles. They'll blame other people for it uh, and rather than coming up with really God's solution. And oftentimes in your churches, in your home, in your marriage, uh, in your business, we spend most of our time trying to figure out who we can blame. And that's what moralistic people do. If you find yourself blame shifting, looking for somebody else to blame, here's what you can conclude. You've not yet appropriated the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to the depth that he intends for you to appropriate it. Because here's what happened at the cross. What happened at the cross is that God took all the blame that rightly belongs to you. This mess is your fault. (laughs) And he took that blame and he put it on his own son who didn't deserve any blame. The blame has already been shifted off of you. When you want to shift blame to other people, it's because you think you've got blame and you're trying to get rid of it. If you know you've already gotten rid of it, you're not trying to shift it off to other people. It's a fruitless exercise. Moralistic people are the ones who down deep inside fear they're the ones to blame. So they make up a whole bunch of rules and they blame a whole bunch of other people because down deep inside they're the ones who feel damned themselves. So just realize if you have a tendency to blame shift and just theologize, complain about things and never get your hands in there to do anything about it, you probably have a problem appropriating what God has done for you in the cross of Calvary. And, of course, remember, these disciples had a problem with that. They still hadn't quite got it. They had a little breakthrough that we saw with Peter in chapter 8, but they still hadn't quite appropriated it. So we're going to expect that kind of behavior out of them, and certainly we expect it out of the scribes and Pharisees. If there's one thing that would define a scribe or a Pharisee, it is a person who writes up a religious protocol that they can obtain, they can, they can uh, 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 achieve. And so when you think that you can achieve righteousness, you are then going to blame anybody who besmirches your record. And that's what these scribes and Pharisees are doing. Problem with this demon possession, these people who are unqualified, who are unauthorized, they're trying to cast it out. You people need to get to the rabbis. And you people need to stop doing your ministry. It goes on all the time when you find chaos. In fact, when you, when you look at issues of poverty, you'll find an entire business class 
that is built on ministry to the poor. And when you get into it, you'll find out it's not just the poor who are dysfunctional. It's the people ministering to them who are dysfunctional. Government agencies, parachurch organizations, local churches will guard their turf in dealing with the poor. You're going, what? In dealing with the poor, you're supposed to dis, you know, divest yourselves of your own possessions. You're supposed to serve. You're not supposed to be protecting yourself. And what you'll find is very quickly a fortress mentality begins to be built with those in government agencies and NGOs and parachurch organizations who are dealing with the poor. They get jealous of one another dealing with the poor and they guard their turf. They're like gangs. It's because it's in our nature to guard our turf and to be moralistic. You have to be very, very, very careful. The work of the devil is very subtle. And you can have missionaries working on international fields who will be jealous of another missionary group working in one province over. Jealous. Moralism, lack of appropriation of the cross, realizing what Christ has done for you, realizing that your life is not a religious performance and God is not there checking it off. He's already checked it off at the cross of Calvary. So that's that's the problem. The first problem they see is the problem with the church and dealing with the chaos. Secondly, you get stargazing mobs. The people were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Here's a celebrity. Jesus, in some people's minds, is just one more celebrity. And all you have to do to see celebrity power is just look at the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's amazing how people just fawn over someone who has celebrity power. Or if you looked at Newsweek magazine that came out yesterday, in my mailbox anyway, and here you have two young women, Paris Hilton and uh, Britney Spears. Thank you. Ha-ha. Some of you were a little too rapid with that answer. <laughs> so you have Paris Hilton and Britney Spears on the cover of Newsweek. And the article is about the effect that the bad girls are having on our young girls in school. And we're told that by the first or second grade, the common language in the classroom is how to dress in a way that's sexy. First and second graders. Why? Celebrity power. They want to dress like them. They want to look like them. They want to talk like them. It's incredibly powerful. And some people just treat Jesus like another celebrity. It's fun to be around famous people because everybody says, oh, did you have your picture taken with, with Jesus? Oh, yeah, I hear he's quite a star. What's he like? And so your position is kind of elevated because, well, I spent 10 minutes with Jesus. Uh, and some people look at Jesus that way. And you see, they completely misunderstand him. Who was it that eventually was saying crucify and crucify him? It was the crowds. It was the celebrity crowd. They just turned on him because now it's not so cool to be with Jesus. Now it's cool to crucify him. And that's the way some people deal with Jesus. As long as it works for me, as long as it's making me, it's elevating me in the eyes of my business partners or my customers or my neighborhood, I'm with Jesus. When the thing turns and it's a little bit unpopular, I'm not with Jesus. That's, that's those who are dealing with him as a celebrity. And, of course, they're all over the world. We have a third of the world who claims to know Christ. That would be two, mil, two billion people. How many of those actually know him personally and savingly? I don't know. But I would suspect it's a, it's a minority because most are stargazing crowds. Thirdly, 
you have devastated children. I think it's interesting that when they come off the mountain, the one who is deeply troubled is a boy. Uh, My son is possessed by a spirit, says the father. And we come into a world after we have studied Jesus and had a renewed vision of him. After you have your morning devotions, you're going out into a world that has devastated children in it. The devil's goal is to destroy. You can see that what the devil does to him. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. Uh, You can see in uh, verse 20 that uh, he throws the boy into a convulsion. Falls to the ground, rolls around, foams at the mouth. Uh, And then you can also see that he uh, tried to throw in verse 22. uh, The demon has often thrown this boy into the fire or in the water. Throw him into the lake to kill him, drown him, burn him up, completely destroy him. And gentlemen, uh, the devil is not uh, some creature in a red suit with little horns and pitchfork. The devil is an awesome power a being uh, who is seeking to destroy you. And if he could possess your life, that's what he would do with you. There's a picture of it. There's where he's taking you. So maybe he doesn't possess you. Maybe he's only influencing you. So he doesn't possess you. You don't foam at the mouth and become rigid. He doesn't throw you off into the lake. He just wants to get you to sleep with somebody who's not your wife. He just wants to get you to just cheat on some financial record. Just shade it a little bit. He wants you to tell your customer a lie. He just wants you to get, and, and he will convince you this is good. He'll give you all kinds of rationale how really a man of, who's both a man of the world and a man of high character sometimes has to make compromises. I mean, come on, in this trick. And he'll start to talk to you. And, you know, after all, uh, you're lying to your customer, but if you think about it long enough, actually this works out for his good. Just think about it. I mean, it's amazing the rationale he can talk you into. And you take that one little step. But let me tell you where he's taking you. If he can keep you going in that same direction, this is where he's taking you. It's to wipe you out. Put your head under the water and hold it there until you have no more breath. That's what he's trying to do. And you actually have a spiritual power that is after you and who would love to possess you. And this is what he'll do when he does. And what he does, he, you'll see that it's, it's interesting here that those who are the most vulnerable, it is the poor and the lame and the blind and the children who were first of all victimized. And it's the same way in Memphis. We have people who are living lives that are not very healthy, but the ones who get hurt the most are the children. We have 150,000 kids in Memphis. 53,000 of them live in poverty. And of those 53,000, 86% of them have a single parent at home. Why? Because single mothers make one-third of a family with two parents. So that largely the poverty problem drives back to the family problem. And we have, think of this, 53,000 kids right now living in poverty. And then when you look at what they do in just a few years, uh, you'll find that we have about 18,500 pregnancies every year in Memphis. 18,500. 4,000 get aborted right off the bat. They're gone. Of the other 14,500, uh, you have... of them uh, who are uh, teenagers and a half of them are single parents. So here we go every year starting a new course. 
with 7,250 kids who have one parent at home who are most likely headed for poverty. This is the world that we live in. And we can say, well, you know what? Those people really ought to... Those people ought to learn how to, how to live a religious life. Those people ought to learn how to obey the Bible. If they just keep the Ten Commandments, they wouldn't have this problem. Here we go. I think we're back to number one, moralistic turf-guarding religionists. Yes, of course, and it would be awfully nice if you would obey the Ten Commandments too. Uh, and me too. That would be awfully nice. But the problem is we have people... It would have been awfully nice if this little boy would have called upon Jesus to help him. If he had just called on Jesus, he probably would have gotten rid of his demon. But he's a boy, and he's vulnerable. And he's broken. And uh, you, we can look at our society here in Memphis. Let me tell you something about our HIV AIDS incidences. Among 15 to 24-year-olds in Memphis, our HIV AIDS infection rate is 12 times the U.S. rate. You can say, well, you know, if those people just obey the Seventh Commandment, we wouldn't have this problem. Well, I suppose you're right. But what about the greatest commandment of all? We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but our neighbors ourselves. So if, did you not sin this morning by the time you got out of bed and got to here? I don't know. I don't know about all your sins before you got here. Because there are many before you even got here at Amen Bible Study. So when we start blaming other people, we're not going to get to the solution. We have devastated children in this community. And we are the ones who are called by Jesus. Remember, he called his twelve, gave them authority to cast out demons. Gave them authority to proclaim the kingdom. Gave them authority to go out and do something about it. And here we are. And all we can find ourselves doing is arguing with, with the preachers. That's about what the disciples were doing when Jesus came down the mountain. And fourthly, you'll see an impotent church. The, the father says to Jesus, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Here in a city where we've got more churches than gas stations, literally. And we can't drive out the highest bankruptcy rate in the country, the worst medical record in the country, uh, with all of our problems with uh, single parents and divorces. And everybody's saying, if they could see Jesus, they could say, you got all your disciples here in all these churches, but they don't seem to be able to do anything. That's what it's like to come down off the mountain is you go into the chaos and it just seems absolutely impossible. That is what the disciples face. Now, why, why would Mark tell us this story? It's a little depressing, don't you think? Well, he's telling us a story because, as we know, Jesus does something about it. But more importantly, the church learns something. Because in Rome, remember, Mark is probably writing primarily to the Christians in Rome who are facing persecution and oppression, the sense of powerlessness. And Mark is saying to them, look, you don't have Jesus physically present with you either. I know that. The disciples experienced this at one point, and they felt powerless too. In fact, they were powerless. And Jesus came down off his high mountain and gave them a very important lesson about what to do when Jesus is not with you physically. And it's the same message we need to have. When he's not with you physically, what do you do? Well, let's look at verses 20 through 29, and we'll see that, first of all, good news, Jesus does overcome the evil in the world. And one day, generally, he's wiping it out. He's going to completely take care of it. We're not going to come down off that mountain uh, one day. We're going to, the, to Mount Zion, and we're just going to stay there, right there on the mountain. 
We don't have to come down anymore. You only have a few years to be able to come down off the mountain. Those are the years you're living right now. For the rest of eternity, you'll never have the opportunity to serve Jesus Christ by going into the field. You'll never have this opportunity again. You get it once. And it's going to go by like that. Someone walked by me just yesterday and said, you know, Pastor, you've only been here 12 years, but your hair has really turned gray in 12 years. And I remembered what Lane Adams told me, who was one of my predecessors. He was here in the 80s. He told me when I came to Second Presbyterian Church, I was 50. When I left three years later, I was 93. <laughs> and you may feel the same way in your ministry. Your hair is really turning gray with all this chaos. Look, you only get one chance, and it does go by like that. My 12 years here, my 56 years in life have just gone by so fast. Some of you are up in your 70s and 80s, and it just goes by like that. You realize how brief life is. I'm just saying to you, if you want to invest in this, it's the only time you get a chance to reach the lost and serve the poor. It's your only shot. Let's make the best of it. And the good news is you are investing in something that's going to win. You know, as we mentioned last time, you know, Tony Dungy told his players at halftime against the Patriots, this is our time. You all can do this. I saw you do it when you were down to the Patriots before and you ended the game ended up on the one-yard line. We lost. But you came that close to winning. You came back from more points behind than we're, we are now at halftime. And we saw that Tony Dungy didn't know they were going to win. There's no way he could have known. He's not a prophet or nor the son of a prophet. And, and he's not God. He can't predict the future. But you serve Jesus Christ. He not only predicts the future, he creates the future. And he's telling you, you're going to win. So you invest yourself in these brief moments. You invest it with situations that look completely hopeless, look completely chaotic, completely evil, and you're investing in You say, what is the use? I'll tell you, here's the use. Jesus Christ is going to come back and clean it all up, and he's going to crown you for being on his team. That's the use. So here we see in this, in this passage, yes, the disciples were completely flummoxed. The disciples were completely confounded. And, and they were saying, what's the use in dealing with these people anymore? They're so evil and so bad, and these demons are so powerful. I just, I just don't give a rip anymore. This is fruitless. And then Jesus shows up. And you see, it's not fruitless. Look what happens. First of all, he loves the oppressed. He says, look at this, just this tender question. almost just breaks my heart when he says in verse 21, how long has he been like this? How long has he been hurting like this? How long has he been in this condition? What sort of woundedness has this boy experienced? What kind of scars has this left on his life? How long has he been like this? And Jesus, you see him, him emotionally delving in to the depths of despair of this world. He's going to feel it. He's not just going to come along as, as a passerby. You know, it's not a drive-by healing. It's an emotional, compassionate, deeply felt healing of someone who is identified with our misery. And gentlemen, no matter what your circumstance is, I want to tell you, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, he feels every bit of it with you. And especially if what you feel is what he feels toward the poor and the lost, he really feels that with you. Don't think that you feel more deeply than Jesus. And sometimes when you're dealing with hurting people, you want to get mad at God. Here's a religious turf-guarding moralist. God, when are you going to start paying attention to these people? As though he doesn't feel. As though he doesn't bear the burden. He sent his son to bear the burden. And he feels it. And he feels your pain and agony too. How long has he been like this? He says, so first of all, you see that he loves the oppressed and he notices things and he cares about it. 
And he looks at he looks at Memphis and he sees how this society is striated and stratified and segregated in so many ways among the rich and the poor. Uh, He sees how some people get really good medical care and some people really don't. In Fraser, there are 43,000 people. You know how many physicians they have? Two. In Germantown, we've got 37,000 people. You know how many physicians we have? Nobody really knows, but there are 90 practices. I'm not blaming you all who are physicians in Germantown. I'm I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just pointing out a fact. Somehow... We're still trying to stay on the mountain. I don't want to go down that chaos. Yes, somebody ought to do something about this. And if I, you know, if they remind me of it, I'll write a check. (laughs) Okay, if you'll give to my charity, I'll give to yours. I'll do something about it. But I'm not going to give my heart to it. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to actually drive down Fraser and look at all the sick people and feel their pain. That's exactly what Jesus did. How long has it been like this? How long have Fraser people lived with 43,000 people and two physicians. How long has that been going on, Jesus says? Jesus looks at, at our situation in business, and he sees that in Memphis we have about 44% of the population is black. Do you know what percentage of the gross business receipts come into the hands of African Americans in Memphis? 0.8%. How long have these folks been like this, says Jesus? How long have they been suffering? How long has this inequity been taking place in our society, he says? How long has this city been so divided where people seem to just line themselves up according to skin color? How long has this been going on, he says? How have these people been hurting? What has this done to their psyche? What has this done to their churches? What has this done to their communities? What has this done to their marriages? What has this done to their schools? How long have they been like this, he says? Jesus overcomes the evil in the world because he happens to love the people who are oppressed by it. He loves them. He cares for them. He has a heart for them. Secondly, look in verses 22 through 24, and you see how he inspires the hopeless. It's very interesting. I mean, he takes this father to task. This father is the poorest of the poor. He's got a child who is oppressed. It seems to have an incurable disease. And he was dying a miserable death right in front of his father's eyes. I mean, this is worse than anything you see in St. Jude. And he says, Lord, if you can, would you just have mercy on us? That seems like a reasonable prayer, doesn't it? Lord, if you can, would you just have mercy on us? Jesus takes him to task. What do you mean, if you can? What's this if you can stuff? And he looks in the face of the poor. He looks in the face of the press. He says, what's wrong with you? You're saying, if? What's this if stuff? You're talking to me? you use using the word if? <laughs> Jesus gets in the face of the people who are most oppressed. No matter what you say to him, no matter what you do with him, he's talking to him. He's saying, you're using it with me. He says, I'm telling you something, poor man. I'm telling you something, oppressed man. I'm telling you something, father of the demon possessed. That if you believe in me, all things are possible. Yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. That's good. That's, That's good. That's good. You know, we get people to... Go preach to the poor. Tell them everything's possible. That's great. Give them a little encouragement. Because after all, we all know the worst thing that affects the poor is hopelessness, right? So we'll just give them hope. Everything's possible. Give them the, you know, name it and claim it. You know, you can do it. The American dream. 
And then look what Jesus does. He absolutely defeats the devil right in front of this man's eyes. He says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. An authoritative voice. After the man had said to him, well, I, I do believe, but you know what? I kind of don't believe either. <laughs> you ever feel like that? I mean, this is kind of the prayer of all of us. I believe, help them, my unbelief. Lord, I believe you, but please help me. I don't believe you enough. And Jesus takes that. He can work with that. We know that your belief is not perfect. It's not how big your faith is. It's who your faith is in. It's the object of your faith, not the size of your faith. And so Jesus then defeats the devil. He commands the devil to come out, the demon to come out. And then look at this. He, he, he goes for the final solution. Never enter him again. Here's what faith does. It casts out the demon. They cannot possess you. Yeah, they can tempt you, just as we said a little while ago. They can tease you. They can draw you. They can oppress you. But they cannot possess you. He says, come out of him and never enter him again. Because what faith does, it cleanses you of your demonic spirits and it protects you from ever facing that again. So that God's people are not possessed by demons. Why? Because they're possessed by him. You only have one master. You're either, you're either worshiping this master or this master. You're either possessed by this master or this master. You can't have this master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also have that master, the devil himself. So when you're possessed by Christ, you cannot be possessed by the, by the devil. You can be, you can be uh, oppressed. And so Jesus here completely defeats the devil, which is a picture of the time that is to come. What we have with Jesus is eternity invading time and showing what it's going to be like when he comes back. He's going to say to all the demonic uh, uh, spirits around us, I command you, come out of here and never be here again. And that is it. When Jesus makes that command, the devils must obey. We saw sometime before in Mark chapter 5. Sometimes we think of the devils over here and Jesus over here kind of fighting it out. And if we pray, Jesus might win. Now, it's Jesus who's the sovereign Lord of all the universe. And you see here the devil, all he can do is get one last shot at that boy and make him look like he's dead before, before he comes out of him because he has to come out because Jesus commanded him. They're at Jesus' total command. But then look at verses 26b and 27. We're told here that uh, the people said that he looks so much like a corpse, he must be dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and look at this word, lifted and the next word, stood. He lifted him to his feet and he stood up. The word lifted and stood are words that are used for resurrection. Jesus resurrected him and he was resurrected. Jesus lifted him and he stood up. Well, what do you have here? Of course, you have a picture of what it's like to feel completely frustrated by the life that you're in. Feel like you're completely powerless. You can't do anything about it. And one day Jesus is going to come back and cancel all of those despairing thoughts. And you're going to find out that, you know, you were down here saying, well, if you can, Lord, if you, if, you, if you don't mind, if you have the power, if you could do this, would you please do this? He's going to say, what's this if stuff? He comes back at the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. They'll stand up and you're going to go, holy moly. Uh, I thought I believed in Jesus. I had no idea what this was all about. So Jesus overcomes the evil of this world. He takes us off the mountain to realize uh, 
what he really cares about and to engage in the world that he serves and to enter into his ministry. But he also comes down off the mountain to show us how we engage in that ministry and how he's going to complete it at the end of time. Now, lastly, look at verses 28 through 32. And here the disciples want to know what this was all about. Why was it that they couldn't drive it out? And if you'll turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 6, verse 7, you'll see why they were asking this. In verse 7, we're told that calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And so they're saying, hey, what's the deal here? You sent us out. You gave us authority. You told us to enter into this ministry. So what happened? Did you turn the switch off or something? Is there some kind of a spiritual power switch? You flicked it on us? Did, did we have a power outage? What's going on here? Why couldn't we do this? And look at Jesus' answer. He says, this kind come, can come out only by prayer. And so we see that the chief exercise of faith is prayer. This kind can, only, can, can come out only by prayer. Some have prayer and fasting, but most believe that that, um, that was an addition. That actually the essence of it was Jesus was saying this kind can only come out by prayer. Here was the problem. And sometimes it's the problem with those of you who have spiritual leadership in your home or you have spiritual leadership in church or people look to you in this community as being spiritually minded men and they defer to you and give you authority and deference. Sometimes once you're used to that, and preachers certainly, we get used to that, uh, you think that you're carrying out a ministry because you have authority to do it, because you're ordained or you're appointed as a teacher or you're recognized. You've been recognized for many years as a spiritually minded person or a person of Christian character or a person who has discernment. And there are gifts of discernment that go with spiritual ministry. And people have recognized that you have that and they've told you that. And all of a sudden, you make a subtle shift in your mind and you think, I can do this. <laughs> you know, the Lord has gifted me. The Lord has called me. The Lord has given me authority through his church. And therefore, I'm to go do it. It sounds almost okay. The problem is, you went in your own strength. You went with church authority. You went with popular authority and recognition. You went with self-awareness, all of which, nothing wrong with it, unless you're depending upon it. And when you depend upon your past conquests or the people recognizing you as a spiritually minded man or previous Sunday school lessons you've taught that went very well or your office that you hold in your church or any of that stuff is completely inadequate to deal with the issues of poverty and demonic possession and sin and disease and moral turpitude. Completely powerless to deal with it. What Jesus sent them out to do was by the power of the Holy Spirit and He sent them out as His disciples. And you're always His disciples, His students, His servants. You're always hanging on to Him. You're always drawing out of His power. 
You're always turning to Him and giving Him the glory. You're always acknowledging Him as the source of all good. You're always acknowledging Him as your Lord, the one who corrects you and holds you in discipline. You always acknowledge Him as the one you personally need for your daily sustenance. You're always giving Him the glory, always looking to Him, always asking for His help. Lord, help me. I believe, help mine own unbelief. God, come and conquer the chaos in our society, in our city. Lord, help us. When these churches, more numerous than gas stations, began to get really influential and transformational in Memphis, here's how you know it's getting ready to happen. Their prayer meetings are packed out. Because I'm telling you, this this ain't coming out by anything less than prayer because it ain't coming out by anyone less than Jesus. It's certainly not coming out by you. I'm certainly not going to do it. There is no way he's going to do it. So we'll know that something really big is just about to happen, that Jesus is really getting ready to make a big move in Memphis when the church prayer meetings, small group prayer meetings, Sunday school prayer meetings, whatever the prayer meetings are taking place, they're just packed out. People are begging God. Because finally they've reached the end of their rope. And the disciples, they're just like us. They don't even pray until they reach the end of the rope. They didn't even know they were supposed to pray until they couldn't do it themselves. And so right out of the chute, God sends us out as Christians to be involved in a culture, to be a blessing to it, and we we start marching. (laughs) We start marching right away. We don't have to even pray. Hardly pray before we even start marching. We just go marching. And we march and we march and we march. We load our guns. We fire them. We get this big battle. Oh, forgot to talk to Jesus. (laughs) And he says, come on back, boys. (laughs) Listen, sit down. Let's have Amen Bible study now. You want to know why that didn't work when we just marched out? Because you can't handle this except by prayer. (laughs) Oh, okay. And that's the main lesson he's teaching here. You Roman Christians, Mark says to them, you want to know how you're supposed to deal with these massive problems you've got in Rome where you're being oppressed, unlike Memphis, Tennessee, 2,000 years later, where you're being acknowledged and you're being empowered and people are favoring you and deciding almost every Every government group in our city is saying, with the faith community, please help us. You think they said that in Rome? No. So it's worse in Rome. And Mark is saying to them, you want to know how you deal with the chaos without a physically present Jesus? Pray. And that's what he's saying to us too. Then secondly, notice in verses 30 through 32, the chief object of our faith is Christ crucified. Jesus talks to them about prayer. And then look and see how he, he, he focuses their, their thinking and their attention. How are you going to pray? How are you going to get to the Father? You're going to do it through the Son. What about the Son? The Son who is the Son of Man, who laid down His life and was crucified, who is handed over into the hands of wicked men to, to die for us. So he, what Jesus does, in, if you look in verse 32, I'm sorry, in verse 31, He teaches his disciples. After teaching them about prayer, he teaches them about himself. Son of man, from Daniel 7, the exalted figure before the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man, Daniel 7, is going to be betrayed, or literally just says handed over, delivered into the hands of men. Isaiah 53. So Jesus is showing them the impossible in their minds. That Daniel, this figure in Daniel 7 is the same figure as the one in Isaiah 53. The Son of Man is also the suffering servant. Same figure. It is Jesus. Until they get that, they don't know how to pray. 
Until they get that, they don't realize that God's victory is coming through people who lay down their lives just as Jesus did. When you take up your cross, you take up your death. If you walk into our sanctuary, if you want to walk this way before you leave this morning, and look around the ceiling and you'll see 14 what we call shields. They're like coat of arms. 14 of them. 12 apostles plus Stephen and Paul. And on every one of them almost, you'll find instruments of death. Paul's has an axe emblazoned over a Bible. I'm sorry, a, a sword because he was beheaded. Uh, Matthias has an axe because tradition tells us he was beheaded. Philip has a slender cross. Peter has a, an upside-down cross. Andrew has a diagonal cross. Thomas has three stones. Every one of them died a martyr's death, except for John who, is, who died in old age in, in exile on the island of Patmos. So they were all martyred. They all took up their cross. They all gave down their lives. And so Jesus is saying, you pray as one who has given over his life to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You pray through Christ, and you pray as one who wants to imitate Christ. Here's your answer. It's prayer through taking up the cross. Okay, let's finish with this. So what? Let me give you three so what's. The first so what is this. Have you come down off your mountain? Have you come down off your mountain? Look, I... I love mountains, and I think mountains are important. And if you were here last week, you know I believe mountains are important. You know what I think about the Transfiguration. I think it's one of the most marvelous moments in world history where Jesus showed us who He really is. And you have to have that. But you have to take that vision, and you have to go down into the murk and the mire. Jesus says, Oh, unbelieving generation." You notice how he said that? When he looks at the entire world, he says it's a faithless world. It's not a world who hasn't developed its techniques. It's not a world that has a lack of strategy. It's not a world that has a lack of money. It's a world that doesn't believe. Oh, unbelieving generation. And you've got to come down off that mountain with belief in the power and transfigured glory of Jesus Christ. You behold his majesty, as Peter said he did, and you go into an unmajestic world. And I just have to ask all of us, have we come down off the mountain? Have you embraced the valley in which you're living? Or are you trying to just live your whole life up on some sort of a mountain? That's the first question. The second question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. Are you living a life empowered by you or empowered by God through prayer? Are you living a life empowered by you or empowered by God through prayer. If you come down off the mountain, you are going to get so frustrated, and you will, that you will eventually come to this yourself. But if you only come halfway down the mountain and you're not really dealing with the problems of life and facing realities, which a lot of men choose not to do. They'd rather live in a bubble and shield themselves from the realities, even the realities in their marriage. If you'll come down and face the realities, you will eventually get so frustrated with yourself, you'll realize you don't have the answer, and only God does, and you'll become a man of prayer. So the two go together. You have to come down and face the reality, and the realities are too big for you, and then that drives you outside yourself. You see the connection. So that's the second thing we have to ask ourselves. And the third thing is this. 
Have you truly taken up your cross? Have you truly taken up your cross? Or are you still trying to preserve life, preserve yourself? Jesus said if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life for me and the gospel, you will save it. Have you actually made that paradigm shift in your own thinking? Have you taken up your cross? The great missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, said, Can he have followed far who knows no wound nor scar? You can't follow Jesus Christ without the wounds and the scars of the cross. In the 19th century, when missionaries went to the field, they typically packed their belongings in their caskets. Because the average lifespan for an international missionary 150 years ago was two years what we now call short-term missions. They were all short-term missionaries. And that is the mission of the, of the, of the cross. It is a, a mission that requires everything that we are, a death to ourselves. And living in a privileged environment, we continually have to confront ourselves with this question. Have we figured out what it means to take up the cross where we're living and serving? It involves your stewardship. I mean, even those of you at Second Presbyterian, which would be a minority of you here, but but a good number of you are getting ready to uh, engage a, a world missions conference here in about two or three weeks. And, you know, there, there are three aspects of Christian stewardship. One is you pay your bills on time. You take care of your creditors. The second is you live a generous life. You really do focus on ha- and how much you're giving away, not how much you're keeping. But the third thing is this. It's at a deeper level. Is there a cross in your pocketbook? Is there a cross in your bank account? In other words, have you died? to the collection of possessions. And is Jesus Christ really managing your bank account? Is he managing your calendar? Does, it, does his cross have anything to do with all that? So regardless, really, more important than paying your creditors on time or even being generous is taking up the cross in your financial matters. That's what it means to come down off the mountain. So Jesus teaches them two things coming down off the mountain. Number one, The chief exercise of your faith in him will be that you learn how to pray. That's the chief demonstration of how much you really believe what he's being saying to you in the scriptures. And number two, the only way to pray and to follow him is to take up your cross and go ahead and die. Then you can come off that mountain. You can go down in that chaos. And one day he's going to lift you right out of it. And you're going to rise up and stand before him, crowned in a way that only God can imagine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the vision you give us of him in the gospel, the one lifted up, the one transcendently majestic and glorious. And then, Lord, we thank you for calling us to go back down with you into the chaos of this world. And we pray, O oh God, that you'll help us to trust you in that chaos. Help us to look to you and call upon your power. And then, Lord, may we see in our lives the evidence of your presence with us as through a cross-centered and prayerful life, you would be pleased to work through us in this chaos, knowing that one day you will eradicate all poverty. One day you will eradicate all racism. One day you will eradicate all forms of evil and brokenness in this world. And we will stand with you as co-champions because you've deigned to make it that way. May we go out now, O Lord, into our working places with confidence.
in you that one day it shall be so. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.